We're not starting a new series on the Psalms, but I thought it good to look at the season that we're in and ask the Lord to help us be attentive to it, to Him in this season. To that end, we're going to be looking at Psalm 73 this morning. It is a psalm of, of disorientation. I want to prepare you for that. As, I, as uh, Meg Pascucci was leading the service at 9 o'clock, I was watching people's faces. Psalm 73 is a challenging psalm. It's a blessing to us if we would but listen to it, but it's challenging, so I want to prepare you. It is not a psalm of praise until the very end. It is a psalm mostly characterized by disorientation, though one I think we can relate to. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their ears overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and arrogant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Has it felt not worth it, being a follower of Christ? Being a God person, a religious person? I think this writer is asking that question. I think they're experiencing it in a very emotional way. The word heart comes up six times if you accept it twice in verse 21, maybe five times. They're asking, is faith worth it? Is it worth it to be among the, amongst the community of saints? Is the with God life worth it compared to my neighbor's? I find verses 1 through 3 a little weird. I think the writer's coaching himself. 
to go ahead and write the psalm that he doesn't want to write, but he needs to write. It's pretty darn emotional. I can relate to that. I'm a relatively emotional person. Is that fair? Yeah. yeah. So when you're going to communicate with the Lord or with others, how do you do so? You ask a lot of questions. I wish I were better at asking questions. Are you a complainer? And I don't mean that negatively. We need complainers. How are we going to fix anything if no one points out what's wrong? You point out stuff that's wrong? Are you a complimenter? I sometimes try to, cha- try to change things or systems or communicate through compliments. It really doesn't seem to work. Do you exaggerate? Is that one of your ways of making a point? My wife has the spiritual gift of exaggeration. I just, that's fair. I, I think it's great. It's a good way to make a point quickly in a lot, of, a lot of times. Do you like to fall on your own sword? Do you own whatever you can whenever you're communicating? You know, you know what I mean? Like take as much of the blame as you possibly can to try and further the communication. I do that. It doesn't work very well. It doesn't seem to. Do you get historical? Do you remember like old deeds or old words? Stu, you've remarked a number of times that I seem to, that I can remember like exact things that you've said, which is so interesting that you think it's interesting because you never say anything negative or troubling, as far as I know. Jan, I'm sure he does to you, but not to me. The reason I ask how you communicate, whether you ask questions, whether you're a complainer, whether you compliment, whether you exaggerate, whether you confess, whether you get historical, is because those are ways of communication. I'm not calling anyone more or less valid. And every one of them is used by psalmists to communicate to God and with God about how they experience life. Every one. You probably think one or two of those are really annoying and one or two of them sound like you. And yet if you go through the Psalms, specifically, I encourage people to pick the day of the month that it is, so the 13th, and pick Psalm 13, and then Psalm 43, and then Psalm 73, which is why I'm preaching it, 103 and 133. If you do that, I should say when you do it, because I know all of you are going to start doing it. Many of you already do it. You will experience through the Psalms, you'll read... You'll intellectually be forced to deal with the entire range of the human experience. Rage, crushing sadness and grief, joy, contentment. I also ask those questions because we don't know what's going on with this psalm. One of the the lovely things about the psalms that a lot of people get hung up on in the wrong way is we don't know why this was written. There's no context. Context is incredibly important to understand a lot of the Bible. But for the Psalms, it can actually get in the way because we're supposed to learn from the psalmists how to pray, and not just that, but how to do so in community. To complain about the world that we actually see. There's no context here, but there is co-text. We can look at the verses and imaginatively think, what was going on with the writers? What do you think? Do you think the writer was in despair? I think it's pretty clear that they're looking around at the people they know that are not followers of God and saying, sure looks like they're doing well. Maybe it's not worth it. Where's the equity, God? Have you asked the Lord why life isn't fair? I hope that you have. I think many of you probably have. It's probably the closest we get to praying like a psalmist left to our own devices. And the, the, the ending to that question, the answer to that question is so big. We'll, we'll wait on that, though. Have you done that? Have you asked God if it's fair? 
Or how come it's not fair? Have you asked him how come it so often feels not worth it? I hope that you have. One of my very favorite, oh, I wasn't clicking these at all, was I, Liam? Gosh, I make the tech team's life so hard. One of my very favorite clips from a movie I enjoy, this is from Patch Adams, and he's going to challenge God, and I've shown this clip before. I'm going to talk about it a little bit differently than I have in the past. I believe this reflects the uh, authenticity of Psalm 73. I believe most of us don't pray this way, and the Psalms would usher us into it. Patch is not uh, portrayed as a follower of God, but maybe that should help us. Maybe from his authenticity we can learn something. So what now, huh? What do you want from me? Yeah, I could do it. You both know you wouldn't stop me. So answer me, please. Tell me what you're doing. Look at the logic. You create man. Man suffers enormous amounts of pain. Man dies. <laughs> Maybe you should have just a few more brainstorming sessions prior to creation. You rested on the seventh day. Maybe you should have spent that day on compassion. second video did i mess it up hold on hold on a second wait, wait, wait. pause 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 sorry again my fault not theirs i'm so sorry we have such a faithful able incredible tech team and i make their lives difficult 63 percent of sundays first of all if that clip was uncomfortable for you you need to become more familiar with the psalms in saying to God, you're not worth it. Such a move of relational honesty. Such a profound move of faith. If we're nervous about it, then we're far more religious than the scriptures. Second of all, do you know, and again, Robin Williams, his character Patch Adams, not portrayed as a follower of Christ, I actually don't know. I haven't ever read about it. It's based on a true story, somewhat loosely. I haven't read about it. Do you know the next scene, though? Oh, it's so beautiful. I'm going to go ahead and play it. You still want help with Mrs. Kennedy?
And I love the clip for a whole bunch of reasons. If you've not seen the movie, it's a good movie, though parts of it are very challenging, dark to watch. Philip Seymour Hoffman is a brilliant med student and now resident. He's all up here, though. Patch is brilliant, and he's so much here that he alienates everyone at different points of the movies. And they have this lovely conversation, and it's before Patch's prayer, and Philip Seymour Hoffman says, I can out-diagnose any doctor in this hospital. I know the text backwards and forwards, but I cannot get her to eat. And Patch, months before, had found out that she had this weird fantasy that I just got you to watch because I'm the pastor and I think movie clips are interesting where she's swimming in a giddy pool of spaghetti. Patch is unwilling to help Philip Seymour Hoffman. And then he prays honestly. And there's more to the story than this, but part of us moving into our role whether that's a head person who needs the heart person, that's Philip Seymour Hoffman to Patch, or we're a heart person, we need the head person. Patch, you have a role. You have responsibilities and power in your neighborhoods, dare I even say, with your social media accounts. And that role is to show your love for God and for neighbor. Perhaps inject a little bit of joy and laughter into the world. And one of the ways that we lean into our role is by learning to pray with honesty about life as we actually experience it. The lowest you've ever felt reflected in the end of Psalm 88. The most angry you've ever felt is one-upped in Psalm 137. The most frustrated you've ever felt when you look around your world at your neighbor's is reflected here in Psalm 73, isn't it? What does it even mean that their eyes swell out with fatness in verse 7? Does anybody know what that means? Tony, you've been to seminary. What does that mean, that their eyes swell? I think the psalmist is looking around at their world and is so angry, yay, disgusted with what they see. What do you see? I see a lot of masks. I was in uh, one of the local liquor stores and I said, I have read that alcohol sales are up 55%. And they were like, yeah, at least. That makes me worry a lot as a pastor. I look around at trees more than I used to because I seem to have more time. Watching um, Harvey Moger's Copper Beach unfurl in the spring was lovely. We're hopefully looking forward to watching as the earth goes dormant. And I think there's an opportunity for us there, even though many of us are challenged by winter, psychologically, emotionally, there is beauty in watching the earth go dormant. What do you see when you're on social media? One of our elders calls Instagram Instacrap because he doesn't like any of those things. And I think Instagram is the one where I look around and it seems like everybody's happy. They're always at beaches, they're always smiling. It's always pleasant, and I know that's not true. This writer is looking around at those that do not follow God, and they seem to be flourishing in ways that he's envious of. Did you catch that in verse 3? Before we get to that, I just have a a quick encouragement. I want to talk to you about how to use social media, but I think in COVID, we're in such a time of collective grief. I want to say this. 
It's not the time to try and bear with the people that make your blood pressure go up. It's the time to unfollow them. Don't unfriend them and be friends in real life, but on social media, I'm going to encourage you to mute and unfollow and all that kind of stuff. And if you don't know how to do that, call your kid and they will walk you through it. You know they will. Morgan would be happy to, Mary. The writer is envious, and we need to, to, to grapple with envy, to be gripped by the, to hear the text. We need to remember what envy is in the Bible. This is not a Merriam-Webster uh, definition. This is a biblical definition. Our culture doesn't like jealousy, but in the Bible, jealousy is desire for another and is often good, okay? So jealousy, desire for something or someone, can be good. Coveting is wanting something or someone that someone else has. Envy is wanting something or some something or someone that someone else has and believing they don't deserve it. So the writer of Psalm 73 is not only bothered by what he sees, he believes he deserves to flourish. And all these other people are flourishing and he's not. And it's not equitable. It's not fair. Our envy springs from this poisonous combination of our idolatry, our willingness to put things and even relationships on higher, to elevate them higher than they're meant to be, and our loneliness, especially this year. It springs from um, natural places in us, and yet they're bad for us. It's a poisonous combination. Envy is mentioned in many, many, many lists of sins, and I don't want you to feel bad. I want you to talk to God about it. The life that you, ha- that you see in others that you don't have, that you think is unfair, you are supposed to talk to him about that. And if you want to be really daring, do so in community. Life doesn't seem to be working for the psalmist, and he talks to God about it. And the beautiful thing about this psalm is God doesn't answer the question directly. The psalmist doesn't get all of verses 4 through 12 answered in the way that they want. They get a better question answered in a bigger way. Union with God is far better than a life that you would deem fair. Walter Brueggemann writes, Union is greater than equity. That is the the conclusion the psalmist is going to get to in just a moment. If this was your friend and they were complaining this much, what would you do? If your friend called you or you saw them post on social media or you saw them, you know, writing this as a poem, my neighbors have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Their eyes swell out through fatness. What would you say? You'd probably laugh first, right? Because what does it even mean that their eyes swell out through fatness? I'll tell you what I would probably do by default. I would encourage them to get some perspective. I would encourage them that they don't know their neighbor's lives as well as they think they do. Listen to me, friends. That instinct, and if you don't share it, great. That instinct is a Western way of avoiding grief. That instinct is a way of us trying to get out of prayer as it's actually modeled, doing something far nicer, far more anemic, and almost entirely impotent. Right? We are to pray like these psalmists. As you experience the grief of the election season, 
the grief of the collective grief of COVID, the specific griefs of your life, we can turn and return to God with this visceral honesty about what we see. We ask, as the psalmist does, the psalmist doesn't ask with direct questions, but indirect questions. Is it fair? Is it worth it? These are my summaries of their pictures of the lives they wish they, that he wishes he had. And we do this in order to move. Look at verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Thinking back about all that God had done for the nation of Israel, the writer resets himself through prayer and through honest engagement with God about how God actually views the world. But when I thought how to understand this, and this is how all their lives seem so great and mine does not seem so great. That's the this, I think. And isn't that like us? Don't we begin our prayers with some idea of what we want, right? Sometimes we're praying because we believe in prayer, but oftentimes we go to prayer with an idea of what we want, right? We want a change in circumstance. We want healing. We want a cure. If you're like the psalmist in Psalm 73, you want more information. You want to know why it's not equitable. You want to know why it's not fair. And so do I. But what happens that's so much more profound is our sense of union with him is renewed. And the reason I say sense of is because he's never left you. God will never leave you or forsake you. That's a promise made by Jesus whose strength is impervious to any evil or ill. But in prayer, especially in honest prayer, we're renewed in our sense of union with him. We often think that he's left. And so our prayer is a move of the mind. We often feel that he's left, like this psalmist mentioning heart over and over and over. We're confident. It's not a thing. It's not a thought or an emotion like we know he's left. And in saying that back to him, the many, many ways that we can and the psalmist would lead us to, our sense of him is renewed. Through our imperfect questions or shouts or complaints or praises and curses, our prayers make the air thin. Have you heard this Celtic phrase, thin places? It's when it seemed It was when they could sense quicker the kingdom of God. You know, the kingdom is yours through Jesus. Righteousness, peace, and joy. That's the kingdom, according to Romans. And it's yours, but it doesn't always feel like it's yours. It doesn't feel real. In a thin place, it's closer to that. Do you ever pray this way? I'm behind. Ask about what we see as a move. You ever pray this way? I mean, this is straight out of the Bible. Psalm 73, verse 22. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Have you ever said that to God? Why not? And it's not a move of shame. This actually isn't a a confession in the sense of like confessing sin. It's a confession of relationship. You know that time that you won the argument and your heart was in the wrong place with your spouse or your friend or your parent, your kid, and you needed to apologize still? This is similar. It's not a move of shame, I don't think. I think it's a move of honesty. And here's my, here's my problem with my own prayer life 
and I think with yours also, I think I'm growing in this. COVID has helped me to grow in my ability to complain honestly with God. I think we're praying more spiritually than the Bible, which actually means far less spiritually. We would avoid a phrase like this because it makes us uncomfortable. And it shouldn't. Stop trying to be more spiritual than the Bible, friends. I think what happens too is we, we're unwilling to pray this way and then those emotions and thoughts and anger just spills out in other places. Doesn't it? When we look around, I see a lot of anger. We ask about what we see in order to move towards God who has never left us but our sense comes and goes. What happens after the brutal honesty of not just the whole psalm, but especially verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. What happens is, verses 23 through 28, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. What a picture of comfort. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven But you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. By the way, you know the Psalms are not theologically accurate, right? Hold on, don't don't tweet that. Those of you that came to the first service know what I'm about to say. It's not like there's, you know, it's not fun for you. The Psalms are not theologically accurate if... We believe that every statement is a statement from God to us about God. The Psalms are incredibly precise. And by the way, it's the most quoted book of the New Testament from the Old. So it is theologically accurate when we remember that this is how we are to answer God about life as we experience it. Does God make those who don't follow him fall to ruin? Does he create slippery places for them? Verse 18, does he destroy them in a moment? Are they swept away utterly by terrors? No. But is that what we kind of wish sometimes when we feel like God is totally unfair? Yes. So it's a model for us of the intimacy. And in verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You shall put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. The psalmist has not forgotten the reason that he sat down to pray in community. The psalmist has not forgotten what he looks around and sees as unfair. But rather than answer his questions piecemeal, what has happened in his soul is he remembers the beauty of the with God life and his sense of it is restored and that is available to you in prayer, friends. What happens after the brutal honesty of verse 22 is the, is the beautiful the questions of verses 4 through 21 specifically are swallowed up by the comforting presence of the intimacy of God. You see the funny capitals in verse 28, for those of you that have your Bible? That's the personal name of God. In this case, it's Adonai Elohim, or Yahweh Elohim. The comforting presence of the very name of God calms and gives peace to the soul, answers a bigger and a better question than How come things don't feel so fair? 
And I want to point something else out because it's in the text a couple of times. It'll feel a little bit like a tangent because my point is pray the Psalms, let the Psalms pray us, and then if you're really daring, learn to write your own. But I want to point out because it's important that the very best way to argue with God is on the basis of his glory. You see that in verse 28? psalmist is writing based upon their perspective about what would glorify him, what would glorify God. Abraham argued with God this way on the basis of what Abraham thought, like in his life circumstantially, would most glorify God. And he was asking God to change his circumstances. Jesus argued with God this way. Moses argued with God this way. The Westminster Confession of Faith, Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When you want to pray about different circumstances in your life, the scripture would invite us, both the Psalms and Abraham, Moses, and Jesus, to say, God, here's what I think would glorify you most in my life. That's the way to talk about different change in circumstances. Psalm 73 moves from basic religiousness into despair. Have you felt despair? Acutely or chronically? Well, there are many, 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 many in the Psalms that did also. They teach us to pray. They pray for us when we do not have words. Psalm 73 moves from religiousness into despair, then into wrestling and honesty with God, and it settles in union with God as the greatest as the most profound answer to our loneliness and our pain. We learn to pray like the psalmist that we might sense it. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Our questions don't go away, but they are made less when we recognize the beauty. For us it is good to be near God, for I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, would you draw near to those who are brokenhearted? Give them peace and healing for your glory. Father, would you teach us to pray the psalms and then to pray like psalmists and to write our own complaints and griefs and joys and celebrations. Learn, teach us, Holy Spirit, to speak with you regularly and honestly the way you have taught us so beautifully from the psalms. Protect us, Holy Spirit, from disproportionate emotions brought about by the collective grief of COVID. Protect us, Holy Spirit, from disproportionate anger 
brought about by this political climate. Protect us and guide us that we might glorify you with our words and actions, with our stuff and our time, with our prayers. Amen.